Hey, Siri. Mm-hmm. Who is Thomas Sowell? Thomas Sowell is an American economist, social theorist, and senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Welcome to episode three of the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. I'm your host, Alan Wolin. I'm really excited about today's podcast because we're going to be talking about one of the most foundational components of Thomas Sowell's worldview. This is a topic which causes so many of Sowell's readers to experience a dramatic shift in the way they see the world. You know, one of the things I love most about Sowell's teachings is his ability to reframe important issues in a totally fresh way. This topic is no exception. Today, we're going to explore Sowell's views about what he calls crusades or moral crusades. First, I'd like to take a few minutes to tease out and describe exactly what Sowell meant by a moral crusade. How is it different from a, a cause or a movement? Second, I'd like to roll up my sleeves and get practical by taking a look at how some moral crusades have permeated our educational institutions. I've invited a special guest on the show, a teacher who pushed back against a popular moral crusade and how that experience played out in his career. His name is Paul Rossi, and he used to teach math at an elite private high school in New York City called the Grace Church School. Paul Rossi, welcome to the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Thank you for having me, Alan. My pleasure. For those of you not familiar with Paul's story, allow me to summarize it as follows. Paul had been teaching mathematics for about nine years at the Grace Church High School in New York City. In the last five or so years, he noticed a dramatic shift in the intellectual environment as the school embraced the work of what has been called anti-racism or critical race theory. Paul felt that many aspects of this work were causing problems for his students, and he decided to speak out by publishing an article called, I refuse to stand by while my students are indoctrinated. Needless to say, that article unleashed a storm of controversy, which ultimately led to Paul stepping down from being a teacher at Grace Church School. So, Paul, is my summary fairly accurate as a big picture description of the basic facts? Yeah, I would say so, definitely. Um, in some ways, it started earlier than just five years. It kind of started in some ways the moment I began in 2012. But yeah, generally, that's correct. Okay, good. So I'll put your original article in the show notes of the podcast so everyone listening can find it easily. Now, I reached out to you because in one of your interviews, you mentioned that you had wanted to have your high school students read a book by Glenn Lowry and that the school administration wasn't so crazy about that idea. They thought that hearing from a black conservative might be disorienting or dysregulating for the students, to use the therapeutic jargon of the day. <laughs> Since you knew Glenn Lowry, I had a feeling you had also read some Thomas Sowell. And I was right, it turns out. What have you read of Souls? It is it is apt because I had read Discrimination and Disparities, which directly related to the reading that I wanted the students to, to think about. Uh, and also I read Economic Facts and Fallacies. And I had started reading Black Rednecks and White Liberals, which which I found fascinating, but has haven't haven't made it through yet. 
but certainly discrimination disparities was very eye-opening for me. And it was relevant to the kind of ideology that, that was being pushed at the school because it really was taken as a, an article of faith that all disparities resulted from discrimination. Gotcha. I have a question for you, and I, I mean no disres- disrespect to the great Glenn Lowry with this question, but I'm very curious why you didn't decide instead to bring in a Thomas Sowell book to your classroom. Um, that's a good good question. I think the, the course in question that I was teaching at the time uh, was called The Art of Persuasion. And you know, I think Sowell's a, a great writer and can express complex ideas, original ideas, very clearly. I have great admiration for him. But because Glenn Lowry's piece was directly related to the George Floyd protests and the Black Lives Matter activism that was happening in the country at the time, I felt like it was more topical. So um, if I'd had more time, I would have certainly uh, been happy to bring bring Soul into the classroom. But it, it was really also coming from the students, too, because the students, several students had mentioned that they felt that they were only getting one side of the story and that they would have liked to to at least engage with some different points of view. And they felt that that was lagging. And so I, I was really responding to them. Okay, fair enough. So I'd like us to dig a little deeper into your experience at Grace Church School. But before we do, I'd like to present to you an outline of Thomas Sowell's concept of moral crusades. After I present that, I'd like us to revisit your story and see if and how this concept sheds light on what you experienced at the school. So let's talk about Thomas Sowell and what he had in mind when he used the phrase moral crusade. The word crusade appears often throughout the many books and columns written by Sowell over a half century of publishing. For Sowell, a crusade was a type of intellectual battle designed to promote a specific social vision. But why did Sowell use the word crusade and not simply a cause or a movement? I mean, aren't people who promote particular social visions just trying to make the world a better place and improve things in general? Why does Sowell use a loaded word like crusade? The reason I think Sowell uses the language he does is that he sees in all moral crusades particular characteristics which make them different from mere causes and movements. Over the course of many books, Sowell identifies 11 unique characteristics of a moral crusade. I'm going to describe these 11 characteristics, but I want to mention before I do that I've prepared a short slideshow at tomsowell.com if you'd like to see these points listed while I discuss them. They're on slide number 14. So go to TomSoul.com when you have a chance, unless you're listening to this podcast while driving, in which case you should look later. Here are the 11 characteristics of moral crusades. Number one. Crusades always frame issues as a battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil. Number two, crusades always pinpoint some easily identifiable villain to oppose and never find the source of societal problems in human nature itself. Number three, 
Crusades are emotionally satisfying and exciting to those who embrace them. Number four. Crusades convey a sense of moral superiority and heroism to those who promote them. Number five. Crusades provide a sense of meaning and identity to people who otherwise lack deep meaning and purpose in their lives. Number six. Crusades, when supported by the government, are used by those in power to distract us from their real goal, which is the continued advances of government overreach. Number seven. Crusaders rarely, if ever, perform a cost-benefit analysis on the results they seek to achieve. Number eight. Crusaders ignore the unintended consequences brought about by the realization of their wished-for policies. Number nine. Crusaders ignore discordant facts which might undermine belief in their mission. Number 10. Crusaders presume the public to be stupid or irrational and prefer decisions be made by intellectual elites. Number 11. Crusaders are a certain type of person who, once a particular crusade has either fizzled out or achieved its original goal, they find another crusade to attach themselves to in order to, to keep the excitement of crusading going. In his books, Sowell gives many examples of ideological and moral crusades. Here are a few he names. The eugenics movement of the early 20th century the crusade to ban the pesticide DDT, the recycling movement, the crusade against capital punishment, the crusade to clamp down on payday loans, the crusade against urban sprawl, the crusade for a living wage, the crusade against overpopulation, the crusade for environmentalism, the anti-nuclear movement, the crusade against radon gas, and it goes on and on. There are many, many crusades that I actually remember growing up. I was born in 1962, and I meant, I remember most of the crusades that Thomas Sowell names in his many books. Yeah, me too, absolutely. So for Sowell, these movements had many, if not all 11, of the characteristics of a moral crusade. Let's take a few minutes to hear from Sowell himself about some of these characteristics. Allow me to quote him. And by the way, all the quotes I'm about to read will also be in the slideshow at TomSowell.com on slides 15 and 16 if you want to read along. On the subject of good versus evil, Sowell wrote, quote, Many issues are misconstrued, not because they are too complex for most people to understand, but because a mundane explanation is far less emotionally satisfying than an explanation which produces villains to hate and heroes to to exalt. On the subject of the type of villains which crusades focus on, Sowell said, 
quote, evils and failings common to human beings around the world may not provide as promising a target for ideological crusades as evils attributable to an identifiable, localized source of evil that can be removed and replaced. He also said, quote, a successful political crusade is incomplete without a villain. To play St. George, you need a dragon. Sowell quotes Eric Hoffer in this context, who once said, quote, mass movements can arise and spread without belief in a god, but never without belief in a devil. That was Eric Hoffer as quoted by Tom Sowell, and I make up that Sowell wishes that he had said that. On the subject of the emotional satisfaction and sense of moral superiority one gets from pursuing a crusade, Sowell wrote, Dry empirical questions are seldom as exciting as political crusades or ringing moral pronouncements. But empirical questions are questions that must be asked if we are truly interested in the well-being of others rather than in excitement or a sense of moral superiority for ourselves. To highlight the emotional appeal which a crusade has to its promoters, Sowell peppers his discussions of crusades with the following phrases, some of which I find funny in a dry wit sort of way. Moral superiority, moral indignation, moral melodrama, cosmic justice, heady crusades, crusading zeal and heady rhetoric, never-ending crusades, world-saving crusades, and, my personal favorite, moral exhibitionism. On the subject of how pursuing moral crusades gives people a sense of purpose and meaning, Sowell said, quote, People's lives lack meaning, which must be brought to them by the anointed via various political crusades or social activism. On the subject of how government creates crusades to distract us, Sowell writes, quote, Dire alarms and heady crusades are among the many distractions of our attention from the ever-increasing ways that government finds to take away more of our money and more of our freedom. On the subject of how moral crusaders rarely, if ever, perform any cost-benefit analysis on their goals, Sowell said, it is especially important to weigh costs against benefits when there is crusading zeal and heady rhetoric in favor of something that virtually everyone regards as desirable, because crusaders seldom pause to do cost-benefit analysis. When it comes to the unintended consequences of moral crusades, Sowell says, quote, If the real purpose of social crusades is to make the less fortunate better off, then the actual consequences of such policies as wage control become central and require investigation in order to avoid unintended consequences, which have already been widely recognized in the context of many other policies. But if the real purpose of social crusades is to proclaim oneself to be on the side of the angels, then such investigations have a low priority, if any priority at all since the goal of being on the side of the angels is accomplished when the policies have been advocated and then instituted, after which the social crusaders can move on to other issues. 
On the topic of moral crusaders ignoring discordant facts which challenge their vision, their vision, Sowell says, when you are in a hot political crusade and full of moral indignation, you often don't have time to check the facts. On the topic of whether or not the general public is smart enough to understand the true meaning of their crusade, Sowell says, quote, the presumed irrationality of the public is a pattern running through many, if not most or all, of the great crusades of the anointed in the 20th century. He also said, quote, surrogate decision-making is the common thread in the highly disparate crusades which have captured the imagination and sparked the fervor of the anointed at various times. So I think that's a pretty good overview of Sowell's concept of moral crusades. Here's what I find incredibly powerful about this concept, and then I'll throw it out to you, Paul, to, to get your feedback. When I'm confronted with a modern-day cause or movement, whether it's BLM, CRT, transgender rights, hashtag me too, climate change, corona vaccination, gender ideology, or whatever, before I try to figure out what I think about the issues involved, I ask myself, does this cause have the characteristics of a moral crusade? If it does, then I understand that the emotional appeal of the crusade, the moral superiority felt by its proponents, the thrill of being on the side of the angels against the forces of evil, the sense of meaning and identity experienced by its proponents, these are way stronger than reason, logic, the weighing of costs against benefits, and the discussion of empirical evidence. Those dry, cerebral considerations are no match for the intoxicating dopamine rush of the crusading itself. So I think that the reason so many issues of our time are so polarizing is that these issues have become packaged as moral crusades, and therefore they become resistant or even impervious to the usual scientific methods of using logic and reason to weigh empirical evidence. So let me pause here, Paul, and I'd like to get your feedback about what I've been talking about so far and how you think it applies to your story. Wow. Well, I guess I would say the question isn't how it applies, but how doesn't it apply? There's so much here that resonates with my experience and, and my research that I've undertaken since I've, since my ouster uh, at my school that I've been furiously scribbling notes on what, what to talk about. There's so much. I guess, you know, one thing that, that stands out to me is it's even gone beyond this because, you know, the, the idea of emotion um, trumping reason or logic or empirical evidence or a cost-benefit analysis and all of that is so power is so powerfully evident to me that it's gotten to the point where the purveyors of this ideology are now have now lumped in logic and reason and objectivity into the schema of evil. So you know it's not merely that they're ignoring being logical or um, the need for evidence or metrics on the efficacy of their uh, of their interventions. It's that those those categories themselves have been demonized. 
so that to me is it makes it a whole other level and of course all of the the bifurcation of good versus evil is present the idea that you know it's not a manifestation of mere human nature but it's a cosmic it's a cosmic struggle and the cognitive dissonance that these per, these purveyors of this ideology experience around evidence that doesn't confirm their biases is also present so so much of what you what you talked about in the 11 characteristics of the moral crusade are there with respect to the last one i think it's also true that there is in many cases a supply problem we know that in particular interracial marriages looked on much more favorably by the american electorate as a whole we know that there's been progress empirically in in access to all of the jobs and and voting and all of the to participation in, in america so you know when there's a supply problem like that you have to double down and find and, and magnify the significance of instances of racial discrimination when they occur and in some in many cases invent them when they don't so i think that's another way that the crusaders find a way to pursue their crusade despite things getting you know not perfect but getting incrementally better now the, the crusade that you butted heads against was a a racial crusade right it was basically the anti-racism movement was was there any other crusade that was causing you problems at the school? Well, there are certainly other crusades that were that were evident. The, the crusade against climate change, crusade for um, transgender belonging. You know, I, I won't say that all aspects of these crusades were bad. In some ways, there's some good that's done along the way, but it is, again, it's the blindness to, and, and the padding, and, and the essentially selfish, I guess I would say, the selfish, motivations for the crusaders that i find resonates mm. and in many cases the pursuit of virtue is more about the pursuer than the than the outcome or the, how it benefits the students i mean i could see my particular what got me in trouble was that i actually questioned the foundations of the crusade that it really set me off as a heretic Right. Um, in a public, very public way that caused a lot of consternation at the school. I questioned the nature of identity itself, racial identity, and I questioned the premise that how we are perceived by others necessitates us to adopt that persona. That is like, should I, to what extent do I have to identify as white right. if I am perceived as white by by society? And I think that was taken as as violating what they call identity work 101. Well, well, you were transplanted into a racial type of crusade to uh, promote a certain racial viewpoint or theory or whatever you want to call it. And you questioned it on a logical, rational, empirical basis. Um, maybe at the beginning, you didn't realize that it was a moral crusade at the time, probably. You probably yeah. just thought that this is just some ideas that people have, like it's a cause or it's a movement. But, you know, the problem is when you're going up against a crusade, I mean, logic and rationality really don't do much. Am I, am I wrong about that? No, there's... There there's secondary. So the priority is definitely on the, the moral imperative, I would say. And, right. you know, I kind of knew that. And I, I felt that because exactly what was lacking was 
uh, logical and reasonable questioning of these beliefs that were being misrepresented as knowledge to vulnerable minds, I felt like I had a duty to question it. Uh, so I, I knew that something was wrong and I knew that it would have consequences. I kind so of I, went in right. a little bit with my eyes open, but also, you know, certainly, you, you know, you're correct. And, you know, soul is certainly apt here um, about the nature of my circumstances. So, you know, by questioning the, you know, the rational foundation of the movement, you then become branded as a villain. And uh, a scapegoat, I would say a scapegoat, because it wasn't just me that was questioning. In fact, I, because I asked questions, some of the kids started asking questions, some of the teachers, some of my colleagues, and the meeting really became um, problematic is the term that I think was used because the foundations of the quote unquote work were being questioned. Now, now I will I will go on and say, you're right. I mean, my questions were attacked afterwards by administrators and meetings, private meetings they had with me, where merely by my trying to make an intellectual argument, I was castigated because to even try to translate these problems into an intellectual framework was harmful to people who, you know, people's ancestors, to people's sense of belonging and their sense of identity. So, you know, it wasn't, a, it wasn't merely that I was ignored. It was, it was also that even into, even trying to make it logical or intellectual was a kind of crime. You know, you know, not, you know, these issues don't have to be crusades. I mean, they could just be a cause or a movement. Like you mentioned climate change and climate change can simply be the scientific uh, investigation of is the climate changing and if yes why and is it a problem and how could we fix it right it could be a very scientific sure. thing and but when it takes on a sense of you know good and evil moral superiority who are the villains here uh, a sense of identity and meaning you know people who just spend their whole life advocating for solutions. You know, one of the things I've always noticed about climate change is I, I always wondered, why isn't Elon Musk a hero to the climate change crusaders? You know, you would think that someone who is actively developing non-carbon based solutions to transportation would be, they, they would lift him up on their shoulders and parade him around town. <laughs> but I never really, you know, yeah. I, I think they're more interested in finding the villains than actually finding the heroes, you know? Yeah, and, and, and of course, the heroes have to come from their own their own clique, right? They can't come from outside of the clique. And, of course, there's also a lot of anti-capitalism linked up with a lot of this philosophy so so that there there is actually a larger agenda there that it's almost a kind of galvanizing wish that it has to all be aligned all of these different crusades sort of have to be braided together. And if an outsider has a solution, well, then it's going to be looked askance at. Right. You know, so Sowell has said many times that, you know, if you're someone who just happens to believe that capitalism or, you know, as he called it, a price coordinated society leads to the greatest wealth and well-being of society and human flourishing, then you're simply someone who believes that a price-coordinated society does those things. You do not identify any villains or you do not feel like a hero. You do not feel morally superior. You know, advocating capitalism has never really 
been elevated to a crusade. There is there is one exception to that though. When I read when I think back to Ayn Rand and Atlas Shrugged, she was the first philosopher who tried to actually make capitalism, you know, a morally heroic stance. Yeah, that's a good point. I that's right? true. No one else did that. You know, even Adam Smith said, "Yeah, you know, the invisible hand does improve the wealth of society, but not because anybody wants that, mind you. These capitalists, they are ornery critters and they're very selfish and self-serving. Um, you can't really trust them, but them competing against each other, you know, keeps them as honest as humanly possible and it will ultimately lead to the well-being of the society. But it never became elevated to any kind of moral crusade for Adam Smith or or any of the other, you know, capitalist intellectuals, except for Ayn Rand. She tried. I don't know if she succeeded, right. but she tried. You know, and I think of some of that as a reaction, like a moral crusade can often create a, a countervailing moral crusade. You know, I think that she was reacting against, you know, the communist crusade, essentially, and, and acting out of her own experience that actually, no, if you say this is moral, I, you know, I, the opposite is actually moral. So I think that they can sometimes feed off each other. Right. Um, what, what you're talking about with economists that support a uh, you know a price uh, a price system you're talking about a free market or or whatever you're talking about a pragmatic it's it's pragmatic reality a hum, more humble a much more humble approach to the problems that of organizing society and 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 dealing with the and it takes a somewhat more you know i think the solace term is the constrained vision of, of human nature that you know, i think the founders of of the American experiment had that as well. They had a more pessimistic view of what of of humankind, and that sort of made something much more pragmatic emerge. You know, they weren't. I don't believe they were trying to create a utopia. They were trying to get to create a functioning system through time that would take into account human frailty and human limitations. Now, let me ask you a question. I mean, now that um, you know, I'm encouraging you to look at what you were up against as a moral crusade and to really think about that you know think about what those crusaders were getting out of what they were doing you know besides just thinking it's right because you could just think something's right and pursue it like a cause or a movement but without crusading about it without demonizing others without moral superiority without ignoring discordant facts without ignoring unintended consequence you know you could do all those things but they weren't they were pursuing this as a crusade. Now that you are keenly aware of that, if you could go back in time, would you do anything different as a teacher still at the Grace Church School? Um, no, <laughs> and I don't think I. I think I might have done it better and more, and perhaps in a more well thought out way. But but the gist of what I of the choices that I made, I think they were fundamentally correct, and I I I'm actually proud of that. When you, when you when you talk about what you just mentioned there, number five on your list, I think really applies. Crusades provide meaning and a sense of identity to people who would otherwise lack deep meaning and purpose in their lives. This is something a pattern that I noticed is that both students and and my colleagues that had a strong foundation of of value, whether that's um, a religious, it doesn't have to be religious, but but a sense of of moral integrity that was apart from this woke movement, they were inoculated in many ways against 
becoming mm-hmm. true believers and having that light shining in their eyes, you know, which, right. which I definitely saw among some of the, some of the administrators who had that function in, in, in the school of bureaucracy. But, you know, I had a, I had a religious upbringing. I don't, I don't consider myself very religious, but I had a very strong values commitment to free speech and, and free inquiry for my father, who was a, a lawyer that focused on evidence. And, you know, he, he was a, a professor of law. So I, and I, that was, ex- that was extremely central to my identity and sense of values. So I think that gave me an inoculation from being swept away with this very sort of superficial moral system as I see it. But many of the kids don't have that, right? Many of the kids are fall under the sway of this because it gives them a very clear, almost a moral palette, which is primary colors, right? The good, the bad. Whiteness is bad. Um, oppressed people are good. There's a moral, there is a, a moral superiority to people classified as, de- as oppressed. There is a moral degradation to people classified as oppressors. And so, you know, I'm going to function in the world with that awareness. And so if I am a member of the group that is morally degraded, well, then I must, uh, I must acknowledge that group guilt, the, you know, essentially blood guilt, take it upon myself and atone and do, do the work, as they say, to make up for that complicity. If you're a person that falls in the oppressed category, uh, well, then you, you're sort of trained so there is some truth to it because there are cultural differences, but you are you have a heightened sense of vigilance around microaggressions and and explanations for why you may fail that that are um, external to your own choices. So I, so it it does play out in this way, which I think is very divisive and crippling psychologically to vulnerable kids. You know, my my least favorite crusade to discuss is is racial based crusades because I find them just so triggering for people. It gets people so uh, heated up. It, it becomes mm-hmm. really, really difficult to talk about. What what I find a little bit more interesting in this context are the non-racial types of crusades. Like things like, here's a question for you. You know, has the coronavirus been crusadified? Yes. <laughs> yes, it has. It seems like it has, right? Uh, like, yes, absolutely. And, you and know, it, it has become, it, it's not just a battle between us and a virus. It's a battle between the good among us and the evil among us. Right, right. right? And who are the yeah. villains? The anti-vaxxers, the anti-maskers. Right. The um, troglodytes, the moral, you know, the morally degraded. These are, right. these. you know, you you get the vax. If you don't get the vax, you're killing grandma. You're killing, you're killing me. It's, a, it's an existential and look at look uh, at number moral. look at number six. Crusades are used by those in power to distract us from their real goal, which is the continued advance of government overreach. I mean, yeah. I think that one's really clear when it comes to the coronavirus. Well, Biden's speeches yesterday is, is evidence pointing in that direction. You know, if I was if I was conspiracy minded, I would say there's nothing more useful to control a population than to keep them divided. And crusades like CRT, which have, you know, demonized certain groups and elevated others morally, spiritually, and the, the vaccination debate, those are, those are um, winning issues for anyone who is desperate to remain in power and, and leverage that power for, you know, their own ends, whatever that is. I, f- you know, I feel like we're actually living through maybe a dozen different crusades. Mm-hmm. 
um, everything from, you know, racial stuff to coronavirus to policing to language, transgender, non-binary, you know, all, like th there are so many crusades being paraded right now. And that is why I feel that we've become such a polarized society. I mean, never do, do I remember a time when there were so many crusades being simultaneously promoted. Do you agree with that? I, I agree with that. And I also think that the costs of not going along with the crusade have been heightened for people. So, you know, it's it's not like in the 80s when you had Earth Day or, you know, 70s where you had recycling or whatever, where it was like, oh, you know, participate, pitch in and help. And maybe, you know, we're hurting the planet, but it's not like an existential threat, which may happen tomorrow. So at now, when you talk about these crusades today, it's as if if you don't if you don't validate if you don't say the pronouns, well, then you're killing. You're 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 killing someone. Right. Um, if you don't, you know, stop polluting, well, then the sea levels are going to drown people, and you're you're going to kill. Like the, this this connection between costs is so heightened. You know, if you don't say the right thing about racial issues, well, then you're a white supremacist, right? So th so there's just very extremely dramatic, anxiety-producing consequences for stick for going off script. And that, that to me is a major difference today. And it's, it's, I think a lot of it is anxiety driven. Um, I think that there's, you can sort of talk vaguely, maybe generally about the anxiety of a population through time. And as, you know, as the traditional modes of behavior, habits of mind, belief sort of leach out of a society when it becomes more productive, productive and decadent, you have this, this tremendous anxiety with the successive generations so that you need to so it's easier for people, it's easier for the government to control you, for one thing. And, you know, it's also easier for people to latch on to a very easy solution, which, you know, involves creating the dichotomy of good and evil. So, yeah, absolutely. I agree with you there. I feel that once people, you know, people, I think people are willing to talk about these issues calmly and coolly and intellectually. But once they sense that the cause is being crusadified, I feel like people have this natural defense mechanism to not really want to get involved with it, to oppose it. So I think we're missing, we're missing out as a society on grappling with issues like racism, like gender issues, like climate change issues, like vaccination, scientific issues. We're missing out on, you know, useful conversations because one side is crusading and they then cut themselves off. Right, right. You can't have a productive uh, you know, conversation with a crusader. Well, you, a crusader is never curious as to why, right? So, so right. certainty is the enemy of curiosity. And so when certain people, you know, it's like the old, was it the Yates poem where, you know, the, the, the worst of us, the passionate intensity, right? So that it turns people off. And right. if you are curious and you enter into a conversation with someone who is certain, you're either going to be seen as immoral or ignorant right and so it's going to turn you off from the conversation and you're going to go somewhere else maybe you'll go on the internet if you're a kid and maybe you'll find easy solutions there that that are actually going to make the problem worse so i think in many ways the kind of crusading on one end of the spectrum can drive people into into opposite places which only feed the crusade so right. it's you know like in biology the positive feedback loop so it's a constantly reinforcing 
bifurcation of the society. And those those little epicycles are in full force today. I see those, you know, with all of these crusades. I also think it's important to to note that, you know, the original meaning of crusade is war. And you know, as a country, we certainly have gone on many crusades, uh, which which are framed as a moral, you know, as a moral imperative. For example, like the the second Iraq war for, for one. I remember that very clearly as being a sense, the sense of we're going to rebuild society. We're going to give them, you know, we're going to help the people and so on. And so I think that's also a form of crusade that we need to really be conscious of because people, people can be very easily manipulated, of course, by war as a moral imperative. You know, touching on the, the bifurcation issue that you just mentioned, I, I want to challenge you on something and, and really maybe, you know, get your your honest feeling on this. You know, when I look at you, I look at people like Barry Weiss, who quit the New York Times. Uh, recently, a guy named Peter Bogosian quit his philosophy teaching position at Portland State University, mm -hmm. I believe. Um, even Alan Dershowitz, I think regrets stepping, you know, retiring from being a professor of law at Harvard. I feel like you leaving Grace Church School, you know, I feel like when people give up and leave, I don't want to use the word give up lightly, like it's a negative thing, but. Oh, it's okay. It's okay. When they, I don't... When they feel like they, they cannot thrive anymore. In a way, I feel like the Crusaders have won. And. Wouldn't it mm -hmm. be better if Barry Weiss were still writing at the New York Times? Wouldn't it be better if Alan Dershowitz were still teaching law at Harvard mm -hmm. and, and he had that platform? You know, mm -hmm. wouldn't it be better if you could be inside Grace Church gently and continually offering a, an oasis of refuge to the students who don't want to go along with the crusade? I mean, you know, yeah. I, res I respect your decision to leave, but you know what's going to what's really going to happen is you're, you know you're going to come over to our side, you're going to write for our <laughs> publications, and mm. you know you're going to be on the networks and the platforms that agree with you fundamentally. And but you're not going to you know like I, I remember Peter Bogosian was just tweeting out, "Hey, I've gotten I've been deluged with requests to be on a million yeah. podcasts, but not on NPR or CNN or MSNBC." Please, I want to talk with you, but they don't want to have him. So he's now relegated to just playing for the red, you know, for the red team. Right, right. No, and I, I think that's a totally fair and, and important thing to talk about. I thought about that a lot myself. I will be honest, I, I'm going to miss teaching at Grace. I'm, I'm going to miss relationships with students that I know benefited from my connections with them. And I did, however, feel like a pet. I felt like the school could point to me and say, well, he's our, you know, he's our token conservative. So we're really not all that bad. And I feel like that in many ways, it's, it's a really, you're weighing the costs and the benefits. It's, right. it goes back to, it goes back to that, right? It's not, I'm not on a high horse saying that I'm, you know, doing the right thing and everyone should do what I'm doing. Everyone has their own, their own struggle. Many teachers have reached out to me and say, no, I'm going to stay. And I think I can do good. And, I'm, and I, I celebrate that choice. But I think, you know, everyone has to do what is in their own, you know, what makes sense to their conscience. 
and also to where they think they can do the most good. I, I saw a chance to do something that I know many of my other colleagues f- felt privately the same way I did, but because they had children, they had family members to take care of. They, they had, uh, I, I, I'm recently married, but I was, I'm was, you know, I, I've been single for a long time. I don't have any kids. I felt like I could take a, I could take a risk in ways that my colleagues couldn't. And so, you know, I'm still really interested in teaching. I would like to teach. I, I'll be tutoring this year. I feel like I can keep that as definitely part of my, my life. And, but you're right. I think that relegation is a good word. People are people who um, have stuck it out for a while. Once they have enough, they do get relegated into this red team and we need to find a way to, with good faith outlets and, you know, good faith people who are, and I think there are people in the center now who, who are really reconsidering what this kind of left liberalism has, has created for, for their own kids. And I think that, you know, organizations like FAIR, Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, organizations like um, you know the Education Liberty Alliance, the Institute for Liberal Values. These are these are not red team organizations. These are you know non-partisan or transpartisan or cross-partisan organizations that are trying to build rebuild the center. And we need if we're going to live together as a country, we need to rebuild the center. There's no you know that and that's going to take a lot of conversations and a lot of good faith, open-minded interactions to to do that so my hope is that is that it's just the start and that that can that can emerge i feel that you know i'm a big fan of thomas Sowell's work and his ideas and you know my goal in this podcast is to promote the study of his works you know his relative anonymity in the society is a very interesting part of his story you know, why is he mm-hmm. relatively unknown in the general population? I feel that if he were better known and better read and better understood, that these crusades would not find such ready adherence so easily. Yeah, and it takes, you know, it. it's fascinating to me how ignored he is, really. I mean, what a what an amazing career, what, you know, so much output and, and so much great writing and insight. I mean, I, I, I would speak with my, my colleagues who were very social committed to social justice. I would mention his name and no one had heard. I mean that, you know, they never in the educational degree programs, you never, you can go through an entire master's degree and PhD and and it never comes up, which is just ridiculous. I mean, it's sad. You could Um, literally major in Thomas Sowell and that would be an extremely (laughs) meaty Oh yeah, bachelor's degree. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I, I, I am. I think that you know his reputation will, his star will continue to rise slowly because he's such a, a clear, cogent writer, and you know, like unlike so much of the nonsense that comes out of critical theory or these academic departments, you know, I think his work will stand the test of time. And, and, you know, later generations will continue to come back to it. So I think that many, many great thinkers were not appreciated in their own time, but I think he will be someone that, that will, whose work will last. On that note, I think we'll end right here. 
Paul Rossi, thank you very much for joining me on the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Thanks, Alan, for having me. 